Hey everyone, welcome to another In the Weeds podcast. Uh, today, this is an opportunity in the series of In the Weeds is just about um, things that we can't really deal with or talk at length about on a Sunday morning, but um, some people who just want to go kind of into geek mode um, and are willing to listen to a longer explanation, <laughs> um, then uh, this is a chance for us to do that. Um, it's pretty clear that you don't have to um, jump into the weeds in order to love Jesus, but um, some people do want to or like to. So uh, so here we go. So we preached, I preached on the woman caught in adultery, John 7.53 to 8.11, as part of our series in the Gospel of John. I did make a little parenthetical comment at the beginning that we were taking a break from the Gospel of John, and I actually did somewhat mean that, that this story is um, probably not original to the Gospel of John, and I noted on Sunday morning that you'll notice in your Bible that the passage is probably bracketed with some comments and footnotes. That is, if you have a modern translation like the NIV or the ESV, or you have um, any modern translation. If you had perhaps the um, New King James Version or um, the King James Version, it probably is not bracketed. You might just get a footnote, if that at all. Um, Anyway, and my footnote said... The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 to 8:11. That's what it says at the top of my of this section, the woman caught in adultery. And then the footnote says some manuscripts do not include John 7:53 to 8:11. Others add the passage here or after 7:36 or after 21:25 or some include that passage after Luke 21:38 with various variations in the text. So what I want to do is just basically talk a little bit about this. I'm going to give you my basic approach to this particular account. Um, this story is probably not a original part of the Gospel of John. It was likely a piece of oral tradition about Jesus that circulated since the first century, but no Gospel writer actually records it in their Gospel. That is, that's essentially what I'm going to come to the conclusion on after I give all this evidence in just a second. Um, But at the same time, the story, I believe, does record a real event from the life of Jesus, and the story does give an accurate view of Jesus that is in line with the other Gospels, uh, particularly his approach to a compassionate approach to those who are caught in the bigger machinery of the religious world of the day. Now, if pressed, if pressed, I would have to admit that the story is not inspired in the sense that it is inspired scripture. Um, and this is a very nuanced position here. So in the sense that our theory of, ins- of scripture inspiration extends back to the original manuscripts. And the point here is that this story is likely not in the original manuscripts. It's not in the original text of John. So, um, so I chose to preach on it, however, and to harvest its helpful portrait of Jesus and his posture towards the woman, and like I said on Sunday, his focus on patience, discernment, and kindness and compassion in relationship to those who are caught in sin or entrapped by sin. Now, that's the basic—if uh, you don't want to listen to any more than that, you are fully— <laughs> um, able to turn this off at this point, and um, and I could go on and have my cup of coffee, my afternoon decaf. 
Um, that's the short version. Now, if you want to get the full version, little here we go. We'll get into the weeds here. All right. Now, in order to understand this particular story and these footnotes in your Bible, it's what we it's what scholars call textual criticism. Um, that the Greek text of the New Testament is compiled from a number of manuscripts. Really, there are thousands of manuscripts. I think there's probably about 100, 120 that are really significant for establishing the text of the New Testament. But what it's called is it's called um, textual criticism. And so here's just to understand a little bit about this story and the process of how a text might become corrupted or things might get left out or things might get added in. This is the basic approach. And this comes from um, Bruce Metzger, uh, has wrote a book and has curated a book, and ha- um, he's no longer with us. But um, his he has a text called the the text of the a textual commentary on the new on the text of the New Testament. Um, and um, Metzger notes this that the first step is you have a letter or a piece of literature written by an apostle sent to a local congregation. This might be, you know, like the Book of Philemon or the Book of Romans or so or uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And these are originally written to an audience and or an individual, or the gospel was written to a reading public or something like that. And that as you have this original manuscript that goes about, it begins to be passed around. And as it is either passed around or copies are made, as the, the book kind of demonstrates its own value to its community— Copies would be made either to extend the influence of the document or enable other communities to profit from the book. And so early Christians were people who did a lot of traveling. There were a lot of merchants, um, you know, letter carriers, artisans, actors, athletes, runaway slaves, teachers, students, people who were sick that were seeking places of healing, government officials, soldiers. These are all sorts of people who would have been traveling in the ancient world who hear the gospel. And so so you get then that original document and copies are made. Now, any time copies are made, handwritten copies are made, that means that there are going to be differences in the various texts. It's inevitable that handwritten documents and copies contain differences in the text, either in the wording or additions or subtractions, whether they are mistakes or intentional, copies mean differences. Okay. Now, sometimes, sometimes, I think we all experience this if you're handwriting something or copying something down, that that can happen on accident. You mistake a letter or a word, you miscopy it, you're going too fast. You might omit portions of sentences or paragraphs because there are similar words and your eye catches the wrong word. Um, or you put the you start you copy a word twice or you misspell a word. Those are all accidental differences. And that those those in New Testament texts, those things are are happening uh, at, at times. But there's also times when you might have some deliberate changes, like, let's say the Apostle Paul writes something and his grammar is wrong. He writes he writes a grammatical, uh, strange grammatical construction. You might have a copyist smooth that out a little bit or eliminate what were perceived ambiguities. Was it Jesus who was teaching or the Pharisees who were teaching? Um, 
or, or who's doing what. There might be things that are added in to, uh, to create clarity on that. So sometimes a single word might be added or subtracted, or a different word might be substituted to make a reading more understandable. Um, so these are all things that ha- that do happen in these copies of texts over um, over the time. Now, what ends up happening is you end up having um, te- texts that are kind of are regional. Um, that the the people down in Egypt and Alexandria they they kind of have a a a, a cachet of texts that they copy everything from and various stylistic preferences. Or you might have in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, like in Jerusalem or up in Turkey or in Syria, you might have a certain style of text and a certain cache of texts that tend to be used. Um, that They're called text families, essentially. And you might have, a, and this is the third major one, is you might have the like the Western text, which would be like Carthage in North Africa all the way up to Rome in Italy. That's what we call the Western text. And um, and with this, there are um, there are differences along the way. And and to our story, to our um, to our approach, what we're going to find is that for our story, the woman caught in adultery, is that the Eastern text, the Eastern texts, like in Syria. Jerusalem, uh, modern-day Turkey, um, as well as down in Egypt, that most of those texts do not contain this story. And a lot of those texts are the earliest texts that we have, texts that, like what we call Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, they're from the 300s AD, um, and um, so these are these are kind of the oldest texts that we have and the best texts that we have, um, whereas the Western texts, the Western Greek texts, like Rome, Carthage, um, that there are other texts like that that do contain this text, and that what we find is that the Western text might have this, might have a, um, a version of this story in like the three or four hundreds, but in the Eastern Empire, there's no evidence that this text is included until about 1000 AD. So you have <laughs> uh, you have these in various places, you have different textual traditions, okay? So all this to say, um, when you think about the Western Church, the Western Church, um, one of the things that probably makes this story so significant um, in the Western Church, is that for the Western Church, the language of preference was not Greek, it was Latin. And in about uh, four, 600 AD, you have um, uh, Jerome translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. And the Vulgate becomes the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, of the Western Church. And when he translates the Vulgate, he includes this story. So this story becomes official in the Western Church fairly early on, and so that might explain a little bit why we see this story showing up a lot more in Western manuscripts. Um, But in the East, this story is not included in early manuscripts, and like I said, doesn't get included until late, like uh, centuries later. 
And um, so what ends up happening is, um, um, and especially if you think about the Western Church and we as Christians, re- we really come out of the Western Church. The Protestant Reformation is essentially a reformation of the Western Church. You have Eastern Orthodoxy, but the um, but the split between West and East happens at about 1000 AD. But um, the Reformation is really about the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and when you have the Reformation, what starts to happen is, um, rather than reading the Bible in Latin, the Reformers are like, hey, why don't we go back to the actual sources? Um, in, in, uh, in Latin, it's called ad fontes, going back to the fount. Um, and so what you start to see is that biblical scholars are going to start to actually go back to the Greek New Testament and read it not in the Latin, but to read it in Greek. And one scholar, Erasmus, he actually is responsible for compiling, recompiling a Greek New Testament. And he uses um, a number of a collection of um, these Eastern manuscripts that had largely were were very late, um, and so they weren't maybe as good as the earlier ones. And um, in some places, he translates the Vulgate back into Greek. And what he does is he actually creates this Greek New Testament, and it becomes, and they print it, and they print it. And this is the thing. Once you get to printed text, the printing press, with the invention of the printing press, you no longer have mistakes from copyists. So when we're talking about the texts of the New Testament, we're talking about manuscripts that are copied by hand, and that's essentially from the first century until about the 1500s when you get the printing press. And Erasmus actually creates a Greek New Testament and prints it. And that text, as much as it is, it's, it, it's not, he doesn't use the earliest manuscripts to do it. He actually uses later manuscripts. But that text becomes very popular. It's, what's, it's what eventually becomes known as um, Textus Receptus, or what we call the received text. And that text, Textus Receptus, was actually the text from which the New Testament of the King James Version was translated in 1611. Um, and as well as Tyndale and Luther, they translated all of their Bibles into English and German from Textus Receptus. And one little note here is that up until the 1800s, all English Bibles were translated from the received text, Textus Receptus. So even, even the New King James Bible today is translated from the received text. It's just um, updated for modern English. So all this to say, by the time of the Reformation, this idea of let's go back to the Greek manuscripts, Erasmus creates a Greek New, a Greek New Testament, and it's very, um, it's very popular, but it's not, it, it doesn't actually take into account all of the textual evidence. So what ends up happening is, there are other um, scholars, um, like Karl Lachmann, he's a German scholar in 1831, and they start kind of scouring places around Europe and around the ancient world to find manuscripts, to find older manuscripts. So they start looking, they start looking, I mean, there's great stories. He goes down to, um, uh, they go down to like, down to Egypt, down to the traditional spot of Mount Sinai, and there's a monastery there. 
and the monks there are keeping warm by burning old manuscripts. And so this um uh uh this guy Tischendorf goes down and he he's like he's rescuing these manuscripts from the fire and one of them is a full manuscript of the New Testament which is called Codex Sinaiticus because it was found um, at Mount Sinai, and so um, which is a very important manuscript for us today. And actually, what ends up happening also is they don't have to go all the way down to Egypt or to Syria. You can actually you they start going down to the basement of the Vatican, and they start dusting off these old manuscripts, and they find this whole manuscript of the New Testament, and it's called Codex Vaticanus, and it's actually so. After the Reformation, people start going down to the basement of the Vatican and are like, hey, my, my gosh, there's all these great manuscripts down here. So all that to say, what ends up happening is that scholars, other than Erasmus, Erasmus has already got Textus Receptus, but you start adding all of these other manuscripts in and they start to say, oh my gosh, like this manuscript differs from this manuscript and this manuscript includes this and doesn't. And like, how old is this one? And how old is this one? And how old is this one? And what they start to find out is they start to have these, they start to come to these conclusions like, hey, maybe we should rely on the older manuscripts rather than the newer manuscripts. And maybe we should rely on manuscripts from this region rather than from this region, because this region has a, a reputation for adding or subtracting or or smoothing out or, or making parenthetical comments. And so what you end up getting is... Um, uh, at, at the at this point today, at this point today, there are over five thousand pieces of manuscript evidence of the New Testament. Um, however, I, to to make the to make the point, Dan Wallace Dan Wallace is a good um, he's at um, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he makes note that today we have as many as um, you might be asking, like how old are the manuscripts that we have? He would say we have about we have. 12 manuscripts that are from the 100s AD. That's the oldest we've got. Second century, which is the 100s AD, 12. And we have about 64 manuscripts from the 200s AD. That's about the third century, 64 of those. And then about 48 from the fourth century, which is the 300s. And so what he says is rather than thinking about the 5,000 manuscripts that are available— or pieces that are available. He says that we've got about a total of about 124 manuscripts that are within about 300 years of the composition of the New Testament. And using all of these, um, the, the fragments and whatnot, um, using all of these collectively, the whole New Testament is found in them multiple times. And by studying these manuscripts and Greek manuscripts, what textual critics have been able to determine what the text of the original writings is substantially like, noting significant textual variance. And so using what and so rather than talking about the received text, what what we use to translate modern translations is what is called the critical text. And that is it the critical text isn't just put together by Erasmus using a handful of manuscripts. The critical text of the New Testament, um, what I use in my classes, what I use to read the New Testament, what all scholars read the New Testament with, most scholars, I should say, um, is a compilation of the best manuscripts that we have, noting what are differences between manuscripts. So you have 
the the text of the New Testament, and then below the line of the text of the New Testament, you have these little footnotes, which is called the apparatus, which explains this manuscript says this, this manuscript says this, and we have a variant here. Okay, so when you get to the this story, the story of the woman caught in adultery in the critical text of the New Testament, um, it will either put it in double brackets or it will exclude it in the footnotes at the bottom because very likely this story is not original to the text of John. And so, like I said, it's absent from all of the major early Greek manuscripts. There's only one. There's one. It's a Western text. Um, it's in Greek. It's called Codex Beza. Um, and, um, but in every other major Greek manuscript, John 7.52 is followed by 8.12, and the story of the woman caught in adultery is not in there. Um, Eastern manuscripts start showing this text in about the 800s, um, but there are but where it's included, scribes would include either some asterisk or editorial marginal notation that the story might not be authentic. Um, so there's no commentary actually in the East about this passage. So there are church fathers who comment on the New Testament and the Gospel of John, but they say nothing about this passage until about 1000 A.D. Um, so when it does occur in manuscripts, it's generally marked, like I said, by asterisks and whatnot. A couple other reasons. So that's what we call external evidence. That's the manuscript evidence. There's other internal evidence that you might use to, to talk about whether the story is part of John or not. Um, and one of the things about the internal evidence is that um, the story seems to interrupt the flow of John's story, of, of John's um, Gospels, particularly John is talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, and I had mentioned that in the Feast of Tabernacles there's these two there's a water ritual and a, um, a fire or lighting ritual. And so when Jesus says um, in the text of John, the allusions to come all to me who are thirsty, and then I am the light of the world, when you have the story of the woman caught in adultery smack dab right in the middle of that, it kind of breaks up John's, um, John's uh, description of Jesus' teaching about the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. So um, a couple of other reasons why it's probably not original. The language of the story uses terms that do not appear otherwise in John, like it talks about Jesus coming early in the morning. And then later in John, it'll say that the women after the resurrection or on the day of the resurrection, they get up early in the morning, but they use two different words there. And the word that is used in, in, um, in John is not the same word as the word that is used in the woman caught in adultery. Actually, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery uses the same word that Luke tends to use for dawn. So a lot of the language in the story sounds a lot more like Luke. Now, if you are, you know, like, hey, who who's arguing that this is original? And there are there's a there's a handful of people that continue to argue that this is original to John. And the argument in favor of the story being original, this is the other side of the coin. Um, you have to ask the question, okay, how could this story be original if it's absent from so many early manuscripts? Okay. And sometimes the argument goes that the early followers of Jesus, especially in the second and third century, one of the things that they are fighting against is really the moral laxity of the Roman Empire, 
particularly the, um, the sexual immorality of the Roman Empire, and that this story may have been deliberately scrubbed from the Gospel of John because it could lead to moral laxity, particularly regarding sexual immorality. Um, and it is true that there were many that, um, that objected to this story because it seemed too lenient on issues about sexual immorality. Um, but one of the problems—so one of the problems with that is, like, the whole passage is not really about—like, verses 1 and 2 just say that Jesus got up early in the morning and went and taught in the temple, and many people gathered around him. Like, why would that be scrubbed if—I um, mean, why not just scrub the whole story, the story about the woman? Why scrub the rest of the stuff? So, anyway, all that to say, um, my particular take is that the story is not original to John, um, but that as an independent piece of Jesus' tradition, there is great value to this story, that it does, it is a, I think it, it is an accurate historical account of something that did happen, and I would also say it's accurate in the sense that it gives us a picture of Jesus that matches up with the rest of the New Testament, and I also think that there is, um, the value of the story is also just this question about the, our posture towards, you know, the world. And um, we've had some great conversations about this. I hope you have as well, um, this story. Um, but I, you know, like I said, I chose, even though it's not technically inspired, like the idea that our theory of inspiration um goes back to the original manuscripts, and this story was not in the original manuscript. So maybe it was inspired in the retelling, but it was never written down um, as in the original manuscript. Um, but I do think that it is valuable to the Church, and that's why I chose to preach on it, and this is a traditional spot to do so. So I hope that was helpful. That's, you know, what, 26 minutes on the textual, the text critical problem of the woman caught in adultery. Um, certainly you can talk to me if you made it this far. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you. Um, and that is a little bit of, um, textual criticism. You know, if you want to learn a little bit more about textual criticism, you can go back into the, in the weeds podcast on the ending of the gospel of Mark. That's another major text critical issue. Um, does the gospel of Mark end at 16.8, or does it go on and give a longer ending? And you can look in your Bible about that as well. But those these are really the two biggest ones in the New Testament. We did have a, um, we had a textual variant that I talked about earlier in the Gospel of John with the man who's healed at the pool of Bethesda, and the, uh, the textual variant that talks about the angel coming and stirring up the water. So so we've had a little bit of an introduction to that, but anyway, I, I think it's interesting, um, and certainly I want to know about this. I would also say this, that we have enough textual manuscripts to know that our Bible, our New Testament, is trustworthy. Like, we are—I would say we are 98 99% sure of what the original manuscripts would have said. And where we have that 1% or 2%— um, that there is, um, these are not major doctrinal issues that are at stake from those, from those textual issues. So, um, if you really want to learn more about text criticism, 
uh, you could buy you could buy Bruce Metzger's book. You'd have to learn a little bit of Greek um, to do that. But anyway, that's it. Um, I hope that's enough for you guys. Uh, but that's in the weeds. The story of the woman caught in adultery. Thank you guys for listening. Appreciate you all. We will see you next Sunday.